Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Gregory Proctor, the only other podcaster to have both me and my daddy on. This is a very special episode. He's a podcaster, he's a veteran, and he's changing the script around multiple myeloma. Greg, welcome. The one and only Gregory Proctor. How are you doing? Surviving, man. Surviving. (laughs) You are the only one still to have both me and my dad. So how cool is that? Oh, yeah. It's going to go down in history, you know? (laughs) I love that. I want to cut right to the chase because I feel like I'm on the show with the host of Cut to the Chase and you have so much to talk about. Yeah. You know, a lot to talk about is an understatement. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Certainly a shock. crazy. Like how you've been to hell and back multiple times. Very true. I want to know how you pull out of that. I I did hear you say something that I thought was profound. You said, am I built for this? And that's something that you ask yourself. That's a really hard question. Yeah, but you know, it goes back to early childhood days where when you're a little kid, a lot of things happen and they transpire in such a way that people don't realize that these things begin to shape our cultural and who we are as adults. And so my parents always instilled in my brother and I and my sisters, this level of independence, this level of what I consider to be understanding oneself and what you represent and how you bring forth your persona to the world. And so it was brought forth to me, even as a little kid, as an example, right? I'll give you an example. Most kids would be like, okay, fine. I get up out of bed, you know, and, you know, mom's going to take care of bed. Mom's going to cook. They're going to clean. They're going to do all these different things. Well, you know, my parents, they did a lot of that when I was little, you know, by the time I got to the age of say six or seven, then the hammer came down and the hammer came down in such a way. It was like, Hey, when you get up, we want you to make your bed. We want you to wash dishes. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. So they start instilling these principles and philosophies into you where you understand what it takes to survive. Because I see nowadays a lot of people with their kids, and I'm not saying everybody, I'm just saying this in general, kids tend to get away from the respect and understanding what it takes to survive. I mean, most kids, you give them money, they spend it. And then, you know, hey, they're back for more money. Hey, mom, dad, give me more money. So these lessons are never really taught in a manner in an early adolescence stage where people can truly represent them. And when you ask, are you built for this? It comes from going through those trenches every single day as a child, knowing that there's never going to be a free handout for you. If you're going to be built for anything in life, you're going to have to go out, you're going to have to persevere, you're going to have to have resiliency, you're going to have to have motivation, determination, the willpower. You're going to have to have all of these things to move yourself forward. And the last thing I'll say here is like, you go ask your dad back in the 70s or back in the early 80s, when Michael Jordan came out with his new pair of tennis shoes. And trust me, back then, tennis shoes were like, if you spent $100 on a pair of tennis shoes, I mean, it was like, hey, you were you were a goal. You know, it was like, oh my God, I got a $100 pair of Jordans. I remember today asking my dad, hey, I'd like to get a pair of Jordans. And my dad looked at me and said, I think you better go figure out how many yards you have to cut because I'm not giving you $100 for a pair of shoes. You know, I mean, it's just crazy, you know? And psychologically, as a, as a kid, you have to start thinking about those things. And you realize that built, being built for something like this is, is extremely important because you got to understand your finances. You have to understand, like I say, your motivation, your perseverance. Is it really important in life? You know, how you prioritize things to be able to move forward. Did you ever push back on that? I push back on a lot of things with my dad, but I'll tell you, my dad was was rigid, man. I mean, going into the military for me was like, oh my God, this is not too, too bad considering how much I'd gone through with my dad and my dad having very strict disciplinary, you know, rules of, of governance of how he ran our household. And I actually love that, you know, to a point, of course, it didn't weigh very well for my two daughters, but certainly, you know, me growing up, 
you know, trying to instill some of those same philosophies and principles into my two daughters was, was extremely important. You know, another example that I could share with you is when you leave the house, you know, a lot of people, they leave the house and this is funny. I mean, this is kind of funny before we get into all the serious stuff. You know, when you leave the house, you want to make sure you're clean, shaved, clean dress. You know, you're, you're put together as if you're going to present yourself to the public. My dad used to always criticize people when he would see them with house shoes and baggy pants in the grocery store, hair up in a bonnet and all these crazy things. He's like, why would you come out in public like that? You know, I mean, it just makes no sense for you to present yourself that way. And so every time we left the house, my brother and I, he would always make sure he's like, look, as long as you have the proctor last name, you will carry yourself in the proper manner as you present yourself to the general public. And all of those things is always way true to me. You know, I mean, it's just like going into the military when they say dress up your gig line, which means, you know, how your buttons and everything align to to the belt buckle of your of your pants. You know, everything being perfectly in order. I mean, not that we tried to live in a perfect world, but just making sure you presented yourself extremely well. What made you want to join the service? Growing up as a kid in Mississippi, particularly after I graduated high school at the age of uh, 17, which was a year earlier than 18, seeing a lot of my family members go off to college, get their PhD, get their master's, so forth and so on. And then they decide they're going to come back home. I mean, there's nothing with coming back home and being in love with being home. But if you've got all this training and education and you decide that you're going to come back and you're going to work in McDonald's, I'm like, well, why did you go get a degree? I mean, you know, I realized that that was kind of like, this was not the path that I wanted to follow. And so I chose at the point in time at a very young age that it was better for me to go out and explore the world get a lot of those things out of my system that I wanted to see, endure, experience, be a part of the cultural, and basically allow for myself to really formalize what I wanted to do in life. And of course, I've changed careers so many times. I've been an entrepreneur for so many years. It was one of those things that I just thought at the time for me of being the age of 17, I wasn't quite ready to go sit myself in a four-year college. So I said, let's go see the world. Let's get the money that is needed and let them pay for college and then kind of move forward in the direction I wanted to do. And it all worked out very well. I did eight years in the military and served my country and saw the world, my God, man, 10, 15 times over, you know, many, many different countries. When I finally decided on a career path, I was able to excel. Wow. Well, thank you for your service, first off. Thank you. And eight years. Tell me about that experience. What sticks out in your mind now about that? You know, when I first went into the military, it was kind of a shock because you you think about there's this old cliche and it's funny, you know, I mean, you got to add a little bit of sense of humor, right? They'd be like, we've never heard of a lot of people, you know, joining the military, African-Americans, because African-Americans don't like water, you know, they don't like to swim. <laughs> so, so, you know, why, why are you joining the Navy? You know, why, why are you joining the Navy? Why not go into the Army or so forth and so on? Again, going back to that same analogy that I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of my family members, they were joining the military, they were going into the army, they were going into the Marines. And I was saying the same thing as I was talking with these people, understanding their mindset and what they were doing as far as their professionalism. A lot of them were going in and they were fighting on the front line. They had basically what I call crap jobs. And I'm like, this is not what I want to do. I want things that are going to be technologically advanced. I want to, I want to have things that are going to provide me with a, a stepping stone or a foundation to move forward. And so I ended up going into the nuclear field, but I started out in the weaponry field first as a torpedo man and, you know, worked on, you know, a multitude of different torpedoes, Mark 48, Tomahawks. I mean, a lot of, a lot of different weaponry systems, which gave me a lot of computer control, a lot of explosive control. I mean, a, a lot of different various things that made it fun. You know what I mean? Made it like really fun. And, you know, as I went through all of those different schools and programs and everything, they really adapted me for what was going to transpire in the future of my life as far as how technology advanced. I'm grateful for that because uh, I was much appreciative of going through what I consider to be the school of hard knocks, because if you can make it through any type of school in the military, you can make it through any college because they pump so much information into you based on your ability to learn, your aptitude to comprehend, your cognitive understanding and appreciation, plus your ability to work under pressure. And if you can survive those four categories, you can damn near survive anything. That's really interesting that your love of technology kind of stemmed from that. Oh, yeah. I am interested in your opinion on mental health in the military. You know, for many, many years, mental health was always kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is kind of 
pushed underneath the rug, you know, because just like with what we've seen in the Me Too movement, just like what we've seen in the you know sexual harassment movements that have that have occurred, you know, here over the past you know 24, 48 months or so, it's been a one side type of environment or society per se. And in a lot of cases, you still get that stereotypical, that kind of discrimination persona that happened, at least when I was in the military, because I was a part of the military where the baby boomers and so forth and so on were in the process of transitioning out. And I want to basically put this on record and say, I was still in the military when they allowed for women, when they first allowed for women to come onto combatant ships. So I remember on my very first boat when we were told that, hey, we're going to have females on the boat now and all of the different propaganda protocol changes and everything that we had to go through, which was just irate because think about it. I'm on a ship at this time that's 442 feet long, 30 feet wide with a crew of 300. Now we're going to bring on 25 females that were going to be on the ship and live on the boat with us while we're out to sea. So, I mean, psychologically, when you're cussing and swearing and do all these dirty things that, you know, you're probably harassing and various things like that. And then all of a sudden you got to go, oh, uh, 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 you know, I can't I can't do this anymore. <laughs> you know, it becomes somewhat taxing. And so back to your back to your question, you know, as far as mental health, I think overall, psychologically, everything has the ability to take its course. It's just a matter of how people adapt to it. Some people didn't adapt well, because I can tell you. A lot of the people that I dealt with back then, they chose to retire because they were like, psychologically, they were like, I can't deal with reporting to someone that may be a female officer and she outranks me, you know, or I can't deal with the fact of having someone on board a ship that basically, for whatever terms, looks nice. I mean, you know, it's just all these crazy things. And so mental health became something that, like I said earlier, it was pushed underneath the rug for many, many years, probably you know, the Navy and, and all these armed forces have been around for hundreds of years. I think it took an accelerated learning curve to close the gap between the time that I got out of the military to where we are today in order to make it more wholesome and more forgiving towards having, particularly, like I said, females on combatant ships, because I don't think if they would have taken that approach, this would have been quite as successful as what they currently see today. And a lot of times it's still not successful because beyond having women on board ships, I mean, you're still dealing with people that have post-traumatic trauma from wartime situation, which is also very hard because you're, you're still in that conditional cognitive mindset of dealing with a wartime situation, you know, and, and, and your brain is programmed that way. Some people never get over that. I find it to be intriguing. I find it to be very compelling in a standpoint of how we see the military being portrayed particularly today as, as it was before. But I also find that where we are with mental health is so by far more spoken. It's a spoken type of communication that is given out to, every, to everybody as opposed to it being so secretive. And like I said, earlier on, I said it was swept under the rug and now it's more widely spread, which makes it important because uh, communication at this point is, is extremely important when you're dealing with these different types of topics. I also liked what you said earlier about people asking you, you know, how can you join the Navy? Like, can you even <laughs> swim? That is really funny. And I've heard that before. Did you yeah. feel like you kind of connected as an outsider to the women on the ship? I'm glad you asked that question because throughout my entire life, I've always been considered an underdog or the black sheep or, you know, the outcast. And, you know, a few examples of that would be like me joining the Navy. You know, I was the first guy in my entire family, both on my mom and dad's side, to join the Navy. You know, everybody was scratching their head going, well, why would Greg do that? And then, of course, you know, leaving the Navy, starting up my first entrepreneurial company, first person to do that, you know, in the semiconductor industry and working in an industry where there was primarily not very many African-Americans doing what I was doing. The list just goes on and on and on. And those are just some of the examples of, of things that I've been able to kind of persevere and overcome from a challenge perspective by people looking at me saying, okay, hey, he's the skinny African-American guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I'm the guy that either is coming in to be the visionary. I'm the guy that's coming in to save your butt. I'm the guy that's coming in to save you money. I'm the guy that's coming in that's got, you know, the plan to help you move forward or progress or transform your project from good to bad. 
And I've done that so many times. We're talking, you know, projects all over the world in excess of probably, you know, $250 billion in overall uh, revenue stream in multitudes of different countries across the globe. And, you know, unfortunately, people don't look back on those times and say, this guy was a diamond in the rough. They look back on those times and they say, well, hey, this guy was a flaming butthead, but he was a pain in my butt and he delivered. But by God, was he a pain in the butt? After the military, how did some of those travels start happening? It's rather interesting because what I kind of skipped over there was, you know, I had a lustrous career in the military and then I went into the semiconductor industry. Most people are like, okay, wait a minute, military, semiconductor. Okay. The translation there is technology. So semiconductor, basically just to kind of give you a short skim of that is how you make computer chips. And basically, I worked on a multitude of different sides in the semiconductor industry. My first job, I worked as an equipment technician for a microprocessing company called Digital Capital Equipment Corp in Hudson, Massachusetts. And then I went on to work for a DRAM manufacturing company, which was Motorola, you know, Intel, AMD. And basically, a lot of people are like, okay, so... What is a memory company? Well, memory company is what you get in your cell phone. I mean, a lot of cell phones nowadays has, has a lot of memory. And then I went on from there. I mean, I'm kind of shorting the story a little bit. Then I went on from there and I worked for a capital equipment corporation that basically built the equipment, which actually manufactured the computer chips, which was called Excellus or Eden Corporation. So throughout that 14 years, I worked in every space of understanding how the computer chip was developed from the process on the microelectronic processor to the DRAM to the actual development of the equipment that makes the actual computer chip. And then after that, I went into my entrepreneurial segue. Wow. Uh, and, and besides that, I've got several patents in the semiconductor industry for technological advancements that I did on, on a lot of the robotic equipment. So I just figured I'd throw that in there as well. <laughs> what excited you about that? Well, there's a lot of things that excited me about that. I mean, you know, when you start talking about, again, going back to adversity, going back to how we put ourselves in a, in a mindset to where we say, it's kind of like what Dr. Martin Luther King says, you know, mind is a terrible thing to waste. If you apply yourself in a manner where you have the mental fortitude to be able to grow and challenge yourself to do anything that you want, you know, you go back to that old cliche, you know, are you built for this? The answer is going to be Yes because you're going to figure it out. You're going to, you're going to dive in head first. You're going to come off the highest diving board, whether or not you can swim or not. And you're just going to say, you know what, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to rescue myself. And so I went into the semiconductor industry and this story itself is, is crazy. I mean, it's absolutely just kind of preposterous, right? So I was in Groton, Connecticut, and I was getting ready to get out of the military because I was going through a very tumultuous divorce. This was my very first divorce. Most people that know me very well have been married. I'm on my third marriage now. And so I found out that my first wife had shacked up with somebody. They were living in my house. And my neighbor, basically, after I came back from a deployment, said, Greg, I don't need for you to go home. Something terrible is going wrong at your house. And please come to my house. So I went to his house and he opened up his uh, kitchen window and he showed me what was going on. This guy was leaving my house and driving my car. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And so he said, I know you're pissed off. He said, you can't go over there right now because this is going to be really, really bad. So long story short, I found out who this kid was. This kid was in the military, stationed at my same base. I ended up basically going to his CEO and telling him, hey, this kid's messing with my wife. They're having an affair, so forth and so on. And my ex-wife didn't like that at the time. And what ended up transpiring was she made it very difficult for me to stay in the military, even though I wanted to stay in the military a little bit longer than eight years. She made it very difficult for me because she was she was filing all of these motions of harassment and all of these other crazy things that were going on. And so I ended up taking an early out of the military. And when I took the early out, I had a good friend that I worked with there in Groton, Connecticut. His son had connections through Digital Capital Equipment Corp. And they offered me a job in Hudson, Mass., which was in the next state over. And from there, I started my illustrious career in the semiconductor industry. So that's how that all went down. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, that is really <laughs> crazy. I kind of want to know, how did you navigate divorce? Well, you know, at the time, divorce was never easy because, you know, when I think about that first marriage, I was like 19. You know, here it was. I was married to, you know, a lady that, you know, her dad was a 
literally a freaking billionaire. I mean, this guy was so well endowed that he could do and command anything he wanted. He was, he was a technology guy as well because he was into solar engineering and, and all of these type of things. He had a house in Carmel. He had a house in British Columbia. He had a house in Australia. I mean, it was just crazy, you know, how much how much wealth this guy had. I never really relied on any of that stuff because of the simple fact that, you know, I'm, I'm my own person, I'm my own individual. And so I provided for my family, you know, the best way I knew how. But in a lot of cases with the situation that transpired with her, things never worked out in such a way to where she felt that she was being taken care of. And so she always was looking for something else. And particularly when I was out to sea, it made it really, really hard on me psychologically not to keep my mind from wondering, you know, what's going on back home. Wow. But like you said, you were so young. Right. I feel like it might have been easier to get over at that age because maybe you didn't realize like the severity well, of it or. I mean, think, think about, think about anything you do when your heart is on the table, right? You know, love is something that really grabs you by the throat, as they say, you know, and, you know, whether it was lust or love or, you know, just compassion or empty or whatever, whatever you want to call it, you know, when you go through something traumatic, I mean, at the end of the day, it hurts. It doesn't matter how you bear that curse or that, that ball and chain that's dragging you, you know, you go through a period of emotional instability that basically puts you in a, in a mindset of saying, what happened? Was it me? You know, you begin to question, do you have the validity to kind of be the person that you want to be? And for me, even at the age of 18 or 19, a lot of these skills that I should have probably picked up through early dating phase, but when you're married, you don't pick up some of those skills. I really didn't know. So it just left me with a lot more questions in life. You know, overall, I'm glad I got out of it because it was a financial nightmare. It was expensive to get out of that thing. Did you turn to your parents for guidance through that? Yeah, my parents, they were always in favor and supportive. The one thing that I that I probably should mention here is it was an interracial marriage. You know, even though back then, probably like in the wow, we're talking like late 90s, mid 90s, where a lot of these things were still kind of frowned upon in some cases, depending upon what part of the country you're in. You know, my parents were still supportive. They knew, particularly my dad, they knew that just like growing up as a child, these were going to be bumps in the road that you're going to have to endure, you're going to have to go through, and you're going to have to learn the tough lesson. And sometimes just because they're there for emotional and stability and advice, you still got to go through the pain and the agony on your own. I mean, that's the only way you're going to grasp it. Okay. So I'm glad actually that you brought up that it was an interracial relationship because I <laughs> want to ask you some real honest questions around that. Sure. Go ahead. Do you feel like they ever truly accepted you? Her parents? I think overall, you know, I've been in, I mean, even if you consider my marriage now, a third interracial marriage, let me, let me just answer that question this way. A lot of things come down to whether or not people respect you in the context of who you are as an individual. And what I mean by that is, do you say what you do and do you do what you say? You know, if you say, hey, I'm going to take care of your daughter and, and so forth and so on, and you provide the meat, potatoes, the financial stability, and you're capable of being able to do that, then I think regardless of what people thoughts or perceptions, they have to give you credibility for your integrity. They have to give you appreciation for you being honest and trustworthy and, and loyal in the context of who you are and your character. Because in my second marriage, I can tell you, you know, a lot of times I felt that way because of the way the family dynamics played out. You know, I had married into an Italian family and they were Irish descendants, Italian and Irish descendants. And so there was a lot of, oh, well, I don't know about this guy. You know, I don't really know. But it took years to break down those barriers. And even after breaking down those barriers, I still felt like there was still not a lot of respect and appreciation that went on both sides of the, of the table. Say la vie to that. <laughs> I'm also interested if your children have ever had a conversation around that with you. All the time. My two daughters are from my second marriage. They're mixed with three different you know, ethnic culturals. And they get mistaken for being Asian, Chinese, Black. Like, you know, all, all different types. I mean, they tell me all kinds of crazy stories. And for them, as young adolescents, I always tried to keep them neutral. And what I mean by that is keep them in the context of schools and other different types of activities that kind of balance the scale of diversity. So they saw everything, whether we had them in dance or soccer or or any type of extracurricular sports, we kept them pretty balanced so that so that they would see everything, so that they would not disseminate the notion of color 
when it came to who they are as an individual or who they dealt with as an individual at a very young adolescent age, because that can put a lot of pressure on a kid, you know, to, to be in a situation to where they're always around the haves and the have nots. And a lot of times kids don't understand that very well. And I think to an extent as a parent, I went to the extreme because, you know, back then I was, I was running my own companies. We're making a lot of great money living in a very nice home and, and, and so forth and so on and pretty much giving them whatever they want. But in the same aspect, you know, I should have kind of really focused in on some of those communicative values regarding history and how certain things transpired on my side of the cultural versus other things that had happened on their mom's side of the cultural. So that way they get both diverse sides of the stories. Of course, now that my kids are 21 and 19, they understand that. You know, I wish I would have taught them that a little bit earlier. But certainly for where I am today, I think I've raised two, two beautiful daughters that truly understand the heartache and the headaches that go along with coming from an African-American descendant. That's so interesting. So you did say earlier that you were kind of a black sheep. And I heard in another interview, you say you had a period where you lost a closeness with your dad and then you repaired that. I kind of want to talk about that because when you were successful in your business and you were just talking about that, you missed some of those dance recitals and you had to put being there for your kids aside. So Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's a little bit of a parallel there. Yep. Can we talk about that? That was something that I always held as resentment, you know, with my dad for, oh man, well into my thirties, probably forties, you know, the fact that he never showed up at my track meets or never showed up at my cross country meets. I understand now why he didn't because of the simple fact that he was always trying to be that provider. He was always trying to make sure that at least my brother and I, we had what we needed as, as kids growing up. And we never went without. And I respect him for that, you know, wholeheartedly. No disrespect to him at at all. But just a simple fact of like every kid, you know, you want to have your parents sitting in the stands cheering for you, you know, particularly when there's a big event going on. And later on in life, when I had my two daughters and I realized that life began to take over, particularly as running a multi, you know, million dollar company, you know, that I was faced with those same fallacies. And the balancing for me really sucked because I would be on the other side of the country or the other side of the world having to catch a red eye flight to try to get back home to see a dance recital or a swim meet. And eventually it just took toll on my marriage. It took toll on who I was as an individual because it just became too much. In one year, I flew over 250,000 miles just going and coming back home to be a part of some of the things that my kids were wanting me to be there for. And a lot of cases, since we didn't have Zoom call and all these technological advancements, you know, I couldn't just say, hey, hold the phone up and I'll be on video chat because it didn't work that way. You know, I had to basically, you know, get on a plane and fly back. And it was hard. And I know even to this day, when my kids and I talk about a lot of these things, they're like, well, dad, you never, you know, you, you know, some of these things I really want to show up for, you know, you couldn't really show up. And I said, now I want you to take that in the context. I want you to take it in the context this way. And I always share with them, were you able to participate? Were you able to get that costume? Were you able to get that swimsuit? Were you able to go to that party with your friends? Because if dad was not working, those things wouldn't have been permissible at all. And then my kids go, well, you know, I was kind of young back then. I really didn't. And I was like, look, there's nothing in this world for free. Everything you're going to have to do, you're going to have to work for it in some capacity. And if you get a handout, somebody's going to want a favor. I try to keep it, you know, to them in a very simplistic manner back then so that they would understand, like I said, the sacrifice and the perseverance that you have to go through in life sometimes to achieve the things that you're looking to, you know, succeed at. And so to summarize, when I put my kids in those environments, I wanted to ensure one thing is that they never felt that they was disadvantaged or they never felt like someone had to give them a handout because they always knew that they were considered to be equal. And that's the number one important thing in life for me, regardless of what color your skin is, is when you're put into any environment, you want to be considered equal because I'm all about togetherness and unity in everything that I do in life. When did things drift with your dad? Well, I think a lot of things started to happen when I joined the military and kind of moved away from Mississippi. I started to understand that there was more for me to learn in life, particularly being independent and realizing that now my survival skills and my upbringing was going to put me over the top in positions that were going to allow for me to be able to grow and and thrive. And so I think the first time 
that things started to go awry is when I was getting ready to graduate from boot camp. You know, my dad was unable to show up for such an important event in in Chicago when I graduated from Great Lakes. And psychologically, I was starting to say to myself, okay, so we've gone through high school, gone through junior high, and here we are, you know, I'm I'm an early adult now, and, and this is an important event in my life, and things are happening the same. I started to kind of move away from where is our relationship. And when I started to move away from that, it caused more of a wedge. And that wedge began to drive a stake into the ground more and more and more and more. Not that I didn't communicate with him, but I, I kind of kept my heart behind Fort Knox shield versus wearing it on my sleeves when I talked to my dad. When he needed things or my family needed things, I was always there to support him. But, you know, I did it from a distance, you know, and, and that's really no way for a son with his father to kind of have a standoffish type of relationship. And it wasn't until he was getting ready to pass away in September of 2012 when things really took kind of a dramatic turn for me and my ability to forgive because life happens. Wow, that's a long patch. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's talk about the dramatic turn. Mm -hmm. And being by his bedside, I mean... That is amazing that you were able to spend that time with him. So basically in 2012, my company back then was starting to slow down because the government worked. So my mom called me late August of that year or something like that and said, hey, your dad's not doing too well. We're going to have to get him to the hospital again. You know, I've been monitoring, you know, my dad's condition for years, you know, and, and I would pop in and pop out, visit Mississippi. And I wouldn't stay very long because, you know, it's just I didn't feel like I wanted to be there, you know, because it's all the things that have happened in the past. What it transpired when my mom called, she said, look, I'm going to keep you apprised of what's going on. But if, as this gets more severe, I'm going to need for you to come home. And I told her, I said, well, just let me know and you know, I'll be there. And so what transpired over the next couple of weeks was the fact that my dad's condition really deteriorated in a manner where his organs were starting to shut down. The doctors were basically telling my mom there's really not much they could do. They were keeping him alive basically through, you know, all the different machines and various things that they had him tied into. And at that point, my mom basically called me and I don't even remember where I was. I was, I think I was overseas or somewhere. And she said, look, you need to get back as soon as you possibly can. She didn't go into a lot of detail. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll be there. And by the time I got back, the condition had gotten to be extreme, which meant that they were ready to push him out of the hospital because there was really nothing more they could do. And they basically told me at the day that I showed up, they said, your dad needs to go into hospice. And I was like, wait, wait, you know what? <laughs> wait a minute. You know, I mean, I'm just getting here. I'm just now hearing all this. And they were like, son, there's nothing we can do any further. Your, your dad's condition between his congenitive heart failure, between, you know, everything else, organs and things that were, that were shutting down. They're like, your dad's going to pass. It's just a matter of time. So, I mean, Let's just make him comfortable, you know, as he's getting ready to pass. And so my mom, my brother, everybody was like not wanting to say anything to my dad. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back because that responsibility fell on me to go in and tell my dad what decision the family was going to make. Now, bear in mind, psychologically, I still got all of this other stuff going on in my head at the time of resentment and things that. I was still, as even as an adult, still hurting from because I haven't really forgiven my father and I haven't forgiven myself, you know? Man, you know, going in there and telling him that and looking him in the eyes and explaining that was probably the toughest thing that I ever had to do in my entire life, which was the very first notion towards me healing myself and healing my relationship with my dad. Were you able to be compassionate? Like what came over you? It's very simple. Are you prepared for death? I mean, a lot of people ask themselves that question probably, you know, multiple times throughout their life. I had to basically look at the situation and say to myself, I'm not prepared for my dad to die. But the question is, is he prepared to die? You know, in other words, does he feel that he lived a fulfilled life? Does he feel like he has done everything that he needed to do through Christianity and in his relationship with God? And, you know, when you start thinking about all these different things, you know, people say to themselves, I may not have lived a perfect life, but if I'm going to be saved or if I'm going to be blessed to move forward, then now's the time for me to ask for that forgiveness 
in order to be welcome into the kingdom of heaven if that's where they're going. For me, I had to basically look him in the eyes and explain to him that, number one, there was nothing medically inducive that could happen that was going to save his life. And the only thing that we could do at this moment in time is ask for prayer, ask for forgiveness, and prepare for the inevitable and try to make him as comfortable as comfortable could be. And I remember him looking at me just as he had looked at me as a kid. And it was that kind of burly type look in his eyes. And you could see that he was afraid. And I would have been too. I mean, it was like my oldest son is telling me this is what's going to happen. I promised him at that moment in time that we were going to do some soul searching together. I promised him that at that moment in time that we would get through this together and I would be by his bedside through the next two and a half or three weeks that he lived. And I held to that commitment because there was a lot of things that we needed to to resolve as father and son. It's probably the best experience of my life, to be frankly honest with you. Wow, that is amazing. Did you do anything for him or for yourself that you didn't think you would do? Well, I think a lot of things that I didn't think that I would do was, number one, the soul searching. When you start thinking about agreements and wedges and, and various things that separate people in relationships, you have to go back and you have to understand the why. In a lot of cases, the why amounts to sometimes minuscule type things. I mean, okay, fine. He didn't show up for a track meet. Okay, fine. He wasn't there to support. But how significant was that? What was that? Was that here on the priority list or is that here on the priority list? You see what I'm saying? And so, you know, when you start thinking about those things as an adult, they become very, very insignificant. The second thing that, that happened and transpired were the stories. Everybody has a story. You know, that's what we promote on Cut to the Chase. You know, everybody has a story. The stories of people that my dad had touched, the hearts, the inspiration, the uplifting, the compelling, the triumphs. These people were coming in that had heart failure. They had other different types because my dad was a part of kind of a congenitive uh, heart failure group there at the hospital. So all of these people, people I didn't even know, okay, were coming into his room and they were sharing with me just these incredible stories of what my dad had done, you know, and how much my dad had bent over backwards, how much my dad had committed to helping them overcome, you know, their psychological and mental distraught stories about, you know, what my dad did, you know, late at night because someone couldn't afford their medicine when he was working at the hospital, how he talked to the doctors and got them in. I mean, all of these types of just inspiring types of stories that just really shook me to the core. And I was just like, is this my dad they're talking about? This guy? You know, because I was kind of like, I was so emotional about everything. I was like, oh my God, how, how could I continue to carry a grudge when this guy's phenomenal? This guy is something that I, I, I've never seen this side of him. It was a blessing because I just became a sponge listening to all of the different stories of things that he had did for others. Do you feel like Cut to the Chase is a little bit of a tribute to him? A part of it is, you know, because of the, because of the fallacy of it's based on friends, family, and professional colleagues talking about things that impact our ability to thrive. And what more to kind of boaster about is when you start talking about triumph, inspirational, motivational things that really move you to the core. You know, when you start talking about soul searching, it gets you charged in a way that you're so passionate about really the connectivity and the storyline of what's occurring that you just can't sit in your seat. You know, you feel like, oh my God, I mean, I, I really never knew I could relate to something in such close proximity to my current day-to-day -day life. That's what it was like sitting at the edge of his bed seat and going through the stories that were happening as these people were coming in. Like I said, there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of emotional tears. I mean, I was just overwhelmed. And, you know, right up until the moment that he passed away, which was kind of unfortunate for me because I had just, over the period of time that I was there beside his side for, for two and a half, three weeks, I had just stepped out with my cousin to go get something to eat. And my uncle called and said, hey, your dad just passed. Now, I had been with him the entire time, day in, day out, day in and day out there at the hospice. For that moment, when I stepped away for about an hour is when he passed away. Like I said, I got everything off my chest. He got everything off his chest. We know that we were at peace. We knew that we loved each other. We knew that we respected each other. And before he passed, he knew how much pain I was in. And he told me, he said, son, I am proud of you. 
I am proud of what you've become. I'm proud of what you've been able to create in life. And I'm proud to basically be your father to know that whatever you're planning to do in the future, in spirit and in health, I'm going to be behind you. And that was all I needed to hear. I'm so glad you got that message. And that must give you strength now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you had to ask your dad a very difficult question. Are you ready to die? I mean, that is intense. Have you asked yourself that? Yeah. Yeah. I've asked myself that. I've also asked myself, do I want to fight? For me, my life at the age of 51 is far from being over. I've touched so many people's hearts worldwide. It shows in the outreach that basically has been afforded to me with the condition that I'm going through right now, dealing with cancer. I'm not ready to die. So, you know, I'm going to continue to fight this battle until, uh, until the cows come home. I saw you share on your Instagram that Colin Powell went through the same thing that you're going through. I didn't know that. Had you been following his story? I wasn't following his story as closely as I had been, you know, up until the time of his death. But he was one of probably many famous other people that I know that have uh, been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. You know, Tom Brokoff, you know, famous for news anchor. And there's been several other people that, you know, from a, from a sports perspective, as well as from a public figure perspective that I know of that, that have been dealing with multiple myeloma. It's a hideous disease and it's incurable and there's no real cure for it. You, you live with it through treatment. It basically sucks. Oh my God, that's crazy. I want to talk about finding out that you had that. You had some pain. My wife was out of the country, basically recording a bunch of podcast episodes and start having back pain, you know, just like, okay, so I'm sitting a lot. All right, fine. You know, go to the doctor and doctor says, all right, let's just give you a steroid shot, anti-inflammatory, and let's just see, you know, what happens in, in a couple of days. And that weekend was probably like the worst weekend in my entire life. I came back home, went to bed and couldn't get out of bed. I got to crawl to get to the kitchen. I got to, you know, got to, I've got to pull myself up you know, with a cane or a stick. And I knew at that point in time, I was like, this is very bad. And what made it even worse was the fact that I was home alone, you know, just like the movie. I got on the phone, video conference with my wife and said, you're going to have to get back from Peru like right away. And she said, well, what's going on? I said, I have no idea, but I can't move. And so I managed to basically get myself to a spine management specialist on the following Monday. He said, okay, we're going to do x-rays and then we want to get you over for CT scan. And this had to be the longest two-week period of my life with trying to figure out what's what because the x-ray really didn't show anything besides, hey, you got a couple bulge discs. The MRI that they ran the first time wasn't really conducive enough besides the fact that they said there's a mass. Okay, there's a mass, but is it cancerous or non-cancerous, you know, benign or not? And so there was more tests that had to be ran, more tests, more tests, more tests. So we spent like the next week running all these tests. By this time, my wife gets back into town. And then finally, you know, after, I don't know, probably like about two weeks, like I said, they come into the room and they say, this is what we found. And you need to seek cancer treatment, ASAP. They started throwing out terms like multiple myeloma. And we're like, what is multiple myeloma? Never heard of the term. It was just the weirdest thing. And so long story short, to really kind of just help your audience understand what multiple myeloma is, it's a rare cancer that impacts your blood and your bones. And so what that does, it develops into the soft tissue of your bone marrow. So in my case, I had L4, L5 bulge discs, and in my pelvic area, my upper right pelvic area, I had a mass the size of a grape as long as an egg protruding into the soft tissue of my pelvic area. And basically what myeloma does is it eats away at the healthy cells of your immunity system, which protects you from bacteria. And it produces non-healthy cells that don't do anything for your body except put poison back into your body and can kill you. And so long story short, that was the root cause of my problem with all of the pain and the fact that the tumor was sitting on my sciatic nerve, it was causing me a lot of agony throughout the course of trying to get this resolved. So my wife and I, we had to become students again. We had to learn and educate ourselves on every fallacy about multiple myeloma treatments, what it is, how to go about the process and so forth and so on. And it really sucked because initially for us, we were just trying to figure out how we can get into 
an oncologist that would allow for me to be able to, to be seen. And so we went through like four different oncologists here in San Antonio because a lot of these oncologists were like, well, we're not going to take your insurance. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And I got to a point to where I was just so frustrated with like, okay, am I really going to die because no one's going to see me? Am I really going to have to endure this type of agony and pain because people are being professionally you know, unethical? And so we finally found this one oncologist who was very aggressive. She was like a bulldog in a china shop. She didn't take no for an answer. I saw her on a Tuesday and on Thursday, I was in treatment, my first chemo treatment. And I'm talking about like, boom. She looked at every lab. She looked at everything. She says, Greg, you know, you and Monty, I'm going to take a little bit of a, she didn't say take a risk, but she did basically say, I'm going to have to go on my professional judgment until we get more analytics. We have to get you started. And since your case is so severe, I was diagnosed with stage three at the time that she saw me. Since it was already so severe, she was like, we've got to get you going now. And then we've got to continue to look at the analytics as we get you through some of these other procedures to make sure that we're honing in on the right targeted treatment in order for you to start to improve. And I'll be honest with you, Rena. I mean, it was crazy because she put me on such an aggressive treatment plan. I was on treatment every single day of the week. I was completely in a fog for the first month of treatment and it was, it was painful. I mean, I was just like, I didn't know if I was going or coming to be frankly honest. Where are you today? Tell me what has transpired. So today I am not on any pain medication at all, which is, uh, you know, thank God for that because that stuff, you know, in itself as a narcotic, you can get addicted to that stuff fairly quickly. So I'm not on any pain medication. The tumor size, at least as far as we're aware of, has been reduced because obviously I don't have any of the lower back pain anymore like I had before. I just completed my second biopsy. And so what they've identified thus far is that the cancer is starting to, you know, recluse into remission, which that's, that's what we're, we're, we're pushing for, which is the main reason they've had me on the aggressive treatment. And so my treatment schedule has gone from five days a week now to basically one day a week because my body has responded to the treatment extremely, extremely well. They've got me in the 90 percentile category of how well my body's responded to the treatment plan that they currently have me on. And so we're focused in right now on the next stage of the treatment, which is the stem cell or the bone marrow transplant, which is the next major milestone that I have to go through is where they take four to 5 million or 10 million stem cells out of my, out of my body, my own stem cells, clean them up. And then basically they hit me with a highly radioactive, should I say, chemo treatment. They kill off my entire immunity system where I have no support for any type of disease or bacteria. They keep me isolated. And then they re-inject my stem cells and bone marrow, and they allow for those things to regenerate and regrowth. And that's all going to happen within a 30-day duration of me being in the hospital, which that's what we're planning for right now. Wow. That's a lot. I feel like you've gotten quite the education very quickly. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Thank God you found that medical advocate that was able to start things so quickly. I do want to talk about a little hiccup that I read about. Medical treatment is extremely expensive and getting your insurance to pay for these things and, and, and navigating the medical system is really hard. Can you talk about a little stumbling block that you had? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from a standpoint of what we realized in the beginning for understanding that this was going to be a challenge, you know, we, we set up a GoFundMe page because it was all, it was, it was automatic that this was going to be expensive. It didn't matter whether we had insurance or not. It was automatic. We got to be prepared, at least try to offset some of our costs. You know, a lot of people go, well, Greg, you took the approach of just putting it all out there. And I was like, there's no fear in asking for help. A lot of people have kind of questioned my severity and sincerity were around sharing my story. And I'm like, for me, I want to be a beacon of hope. I want to increase awareness. I want to ensure that if anyone else has got to go through this, let me either, hey, lead, lead by example or put enough content out there to where people can, can understand I'm going through the same thing. We started out with the GoFundMe because initially when we contacted our insurance company, they were like, okay, great. We have to see lab work. We have to see this. We have to see this and all these other different things. But before we see any of that stuff, before we'll prove it, you know, it's going to be like $15,000, $20,000 that you're going to have to pay, you know, up front. 
and my wife and I are like, okay, all right. So we've got our out-of-pocket expense. We've got our deductible, you know, which came to about $15,000. So we're like, all right, fine. Stroke the check, you know, get it done. But then when we started to look into who's in network, who's not in network, who's got the highest survival rate, who has this, who has that, when it comes to getting the best possible treatment care, we started to realize that those services were not really in our backyard. Those services were in Boston. Those services were in other parts of the U.S., which would require us to basically be in a position to where now we've got to consider moving for a short period of time. We have to consider, you know, temporary location, you know, for for housing. We have to consider how are we going to continue, you know, to survive for the first hundred days after the stem cell transplant because I'm going to be kind of isolated, you know, because I won't have much of an immunity system. So I'll be in a situation to where I can't be out in the general public and do some of the things that everyone else would ever do until I start getting all of my vaccines and various things back into my system again. And so as we started looking into all of this stuff, we we're like, oh my God, you know, besides the medical expense, we got to consider how much it's going to cost us for living and all these other things. And so we started researching foundations and more aspects to what the insurance could actually cover. And what we found out just only here recently, because the insurance finally just came back with an approval letter that basically said that they would approve the transplant was the fact that, you know, we went through eight and a half, nine, almost 10 weeks of not knowing whether or not they were going to approve it or not, and and just dealing with a bunch of uncertainty. And of course, by me being a military vet, you know, and going back to the veteran hospital, you know, we had contacted them early on at the same juncture that we contacted everybody else. And like I said, like having a three-legged step stool, you got three different things going on between fundraising, insurance, and, and the VA hospital trying to find an additional source of capital just to kind of help out. It's only been recently where, you know, a lot of these people have kind of stepped up to the plate to try and offer, you know, this type of assistance. We're pushing every day, uh, dealing with letter writing, phone calls. I mean, it's, it's, it's a full-time job and I'm the patient, you know, my, my wife is doing a lot of, you know, the other work that's going on as far as dealing with the foundations and other various things. But as I'm dealing with the insurance companies and all of the things that we have to do to make sure the I's are dotted and T's are crossed, it is terrible, you know, having to go through all of the hoops and hurdles and junctures to be able to survive. And that's not even the crux of it. Once I'm on the other side of the SCT, the maintenance alone exceeds $30,000 a month just for medication. $30,000 a month? $30,000 a month. How, how, how can anyone afford? afford that? Exactly. So imagine if you don't have insurance if you, or if you have very basic insurance that only covers a certain percentage of your drug costs, I mean, you're spending thousands of dollars. And this is the very reason why once I was diagnosed with this and realized all of these different fallacies and complications that are out there, I started to say to myself, there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way. So, you know, even though I was sick, we managed to start up Cut to the Chase Foundation on the notion of being able not only to bring forth awareness, but be able to kind of help those that are in these situations that are needing basically what I consider a helping hand. Because in a lot of cases, you go apply for a grant or loan or whatever the case may be, there's so much bureaucratic paperwork and headache because, you know, we've gone through it ourselves where the individual is just needing a little bit of relief, you know, whether it be paying your mortgage or whether it be helping out with the groceries or gift cards or whatever the case may be. It's just hard to get those things. You know, I've said to myself, psychologically, it shouldn't be that way. How can we improve this? How can we change the narrative? How can we change the trajectory that really forces the medical industry to look at taking on multiple myeloma as an early detection versus a reactive protection. I mean, it's all these different things that are out there. And I'm just saying, you know, as soon as I get my health and shrink back, I'm going to push like hell because these are things that I see that are value added as people are each and every day are being more and more diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And it's not just a 66 or 75 year old disease anymore. I've talked to people that are 35, talked to people that are 20. I'm 51. This disease is running systemic across our nation and across the world. And it's one of these type of things that is, is hidden right now because the medical system only looks at it from a reactive perspective versus a proactive perspective. Have you found any support groups or resources that have been helpful? Oh, absolutely. We're tied into a lot of different uh, Facebook groups. We're tied into Dana-Farber, which 
Cut to the Chase and Dana Farber are going to be doing a podcast series focused in on multiple myeloma. We've, we've done a memorandum of understanding with them, and it's going to be a platform that will help leverage some of the early detection. They started up a study called Promise, which is really geared towards focusing in on folks that want to understand whether they have multiple myeloma at an early stage or whether or not they want to be put into the database as, as being a part of the monitoring that is going on to ensure that they're building a case around why multiple myeloma should be considered an early detection as far as cancer versus a reactive detection for cancer. If you're having any type of bone pain, back pain, ailments, aches, this, that, or the other, and you haven't been checked out in a, in a while, I would highly suggest that you get yourself checked out. And basically what you need to ask for when you go into your doctor is not just a standard 14 panel CBC blood work, but you need to ask for a multiple myeloma blood work panel. You need to get checked out. This disease is becoming, like I said, something that is, like I said, it's, it's very uncommon and you don't want to wait until the last minute because like it's the reactive approach of this is they've seen in a lot of the studies that we've read and we've seen in a lot of the early cases where multiple myeloma can exist in your body as what they call MGUS. MGUS being the fact that you have all of the signs, it's just that the disease hasn't gone rampant yet. And you can have MGUS in your body for 10, 12, 15, 20 years, eight years, five years. You can live with it and never really even know. But when the disease breaks loose at that point, it's too late. A lot of the research still says that it's a, an environmental type of disease, but no one can pinpoint, well, does it come from chemicals? Does it come from food? Does it come from breathing air? Does it come from the water? I mean, to me, that's another reason why, you know, starting the foundation is to put some emphasis behind understanding the truth. You know, let's, let's get to the fallacy of it. I mean, we can't continue to have something that's incurable and not understand that people can get off of these drugs and kind of live a wholesome quality of life. To me, if you still have life beyond whatever, a year, two, three, 20 years, to me, I say that that's curable. But a lot of times the doctors and the medical community are saying, as long as you're on some type of maintenance drug after your SCT or your bone marrow transplant, the disease has not been cured. Yeah. I cannot imagine having, I mean, that's crazy. You've got 400 guests. Your company was taking off. You've been a workaholic and sometimes life just knocks you off your feet and you have to only focus on your health. How hard is that? I think you know me well enough to know that me being like the energizer bunny, it, it basically, it, it's like having the rug pulled from underneath me. I mean, I'm not in control. You know, when you look at like everything that is happening, you know, you've got a higher power that's in control, that's kind of guiding me, that's saying, hey, you know, these are the things you have to do. You've got to follow the regiment in order to survive. I mean, trust me, you know, if I miss a day of treatment, that's not going to be good, you know, for, for anybody. I'm just focused right now on number one, trying to humble myself. Because when you talk about, like we talked about earlier on, are you built for this? In a lot of cases, you know, I always put others before I put myself. And, you know, now I'm faced with such a terminal type illness. And a lot of people say, well, it's really not terminal. But, you know, when you go through some of the things that you go through and dealing with multiple myeloma, you have a terminal type mindset that basically says, all right, you know, am I going to get through the next day? Am I going to get through the end of the week, particularly in the early stages, because it's so complex and so painful to have to deal with the uncertainty of knowing that your body, you can't control. I mean, it just hurts, it just hurts to the core to move, you know, humbling myself and understanding that what was in the past was in the past. And there's nothing I can do about that anymore, but I can control my future. And I got to have the right mindset to be able to adapt to these changes and weather the storm on a day-by-day -day basis, which basically means that I don't prioritize myself four, five, six, seven days out anymore. I prioritize myself based on what I need to get accomplished that day. And my day starts out basically saying at 4 a.m. in the morning, between 4 a.m. and basically about 2.30 is where my energy lies. After 2.30, I don't have any energy. My batteries are dead because of the fatigue from dealing with the battling of the cancer, from dealing with you know the drugs, from dealing with all of the things that, that get pushed into my system. As you obviously already know, 
my voice. You know, I mean, I've, I've pretty much, I don't have the same powerful voice that I would normally have, you know, from, from podcasting. And so all of these things have played in, into the course of how I see my life each and every day, taking it one day at a time and recognizing that the significance of it is, is how I prioritize the things that are important. And that's where I'm at right now in my life. I know my dad is going to really appreciate this episode. Is there anything that you would like to ask him? If he could turn back time, what would he change? You know, and, you know, not to look at that from a negative aspect, but, you know, based on where he is today in life and, and, and obviously how well you have turned out to be, you know, just a, an incredible friend and incredible podcaster and incredible professional. That's really beautiful. I was looking at your shirt and it says chance to be. Yeah. One of the things that we've done with cut to the chase is every time we pull dialogue out from cut to the chase, we put it in what we call our digital quote archive. And so we've got a designer in Canada that develops all of our quote t-shirts. You actually have a quote t-shirt. I haven't shared it with you yet. <laughs> I need it. Uh, so yeah, yeah. We've got quote t-shirts for every episode. Some episodes have three, four quotes and you know these things They've actually become uh, pretty, pretty popular. You know, the people go back, oh my God, those are my words. I was like, oh yeah, that's what you said, you know? <laughs> that's yeah. a great idea. I love that. Well, I look forward to many more years of Cut to the Chase as well. And it was such <laughs> a special episode for me and my dad. So thank you for having us on. And thank you for sharing your story with me tonight. It's been a true pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for having me on board. You're a godsend. You've been an angel. You know, you've been a, a major support member in all of the things that we've been able to do, you know, as not only as friends, but as professionals. And, you know, I'm blessed and I'm grateful to have you in my life. And thank you again. Thank you for coming on so late in the evening when I know you're probably spent. I have enjoyed this time and I just wish you continued blessings and strength. And I'm so glad that you're in my life. All right, Rena. Have a beautiful night. You too. Take care. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Isn't this quite an ironic story? You know, we were on Greg's show, and now he's on your show, and where, again, he's been very open with you, and a, a very candid conversation of life. And he ends it by asking the question, Wayne, if you could go back in time, and change something or some things. Well, what would you change? And the irony is that I'm learning a really important lesson from Greg's story that you can't really go backwards. It's in God's hands. You have to keep your faith and really learn from the lessons uh, that you experience. And uh, it's your story. It wouldn't be your story if the events did not occur. It's not that you can go back in time and change anything once they've happened. That's what makes you who you are. It's what you've done. What you do is what will make you hopefully achieve and do better in the future, which is what he talks about. He talks about always moving forward and planning for the future. And with some of the experiences that he has where he reaches out and tries to help people, the irony is that even though he had this fallout with his father and was really under a misnomer of what his father was really all about, when it came to his care or things that he thought he should do, and his father gets very ill, terminally ill, there isn't anything that the doctors can do where he's facing the end of his stay. He spends two or three weeks with him, discussing life, going over his whole life story, and he also got to see how many people that he reaches out to, and really, he couldn't believe it's the same person because he has this false impression of where he's making his own judgment of life and the variables of his father's life, but not really having enough information or really knowing his true self. Isn't it ironic that he has now contracted a very terrible cancer and is facing up to it and fighting it? And the type of background that he really got from early days of his father, where his father also, just like my father, when we had that tape about a work ethic and values, isn't it ironic that those people pass on not to take a free handout, to dress and be proud of yourself and present yourself where you don't look like a scumbag and where you stand up straight, stand up tall, be proud of what you do, no matter what it is. 
and he has the same background. All you can do as you walk through life is try to pivot and make the best moves that you can. And that's what he's done. Another interesting story is, is that sometimes some of the heartbreak that he's had has been able to generate him into further accomplishment, okay? Certain things and experiences that he got in the Navy are unbelievable. And isn't it ironic? That's where Marvin really got his start and understanding of life was being in the Navy and serving in World War II. It's the type of discipline that maybe we all need. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 